If you go down down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. My truth is a truth <laughs> that you will never understand. Private ownership is one single individual giving free light. Doesn't that tell you that your system is more akin to authoritarian dictatorship? It's no is a D. How come you can buy our house where it's our house and we live there? Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. The rights aren't rights if someone could take them away. They have every man in a straitjacket. To leave a country is like breaking out of jail. And to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bullish looking in the mirror in itself. Shout out! Revolution! Shout Okay, welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt, and with me in the studio is Lou Luzern. Say hi. It's Lou Stern. Lou Stern? Yeah. Oh, okay. Lou Stern, right, okay. So I think there's a poet named Luzern or something. Or there's a lake Luzern. Program, this program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed, uh, Facebook thinks we're scary and terroristic, uh, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Like this show, if you want the warning that you might be susceptible of extremist views. Uh, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meaning point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. Those are the three lefts. We probably wave the flags they represent for the flags that they have. So uh, this episode of the show, we're going to continue straight um, away from last week's episode where we got into some electoral politics, mostly oh, just talking about the system itself. The election system, the two-party system, how it's kind of set up. People hate on it, but they're alienated from organizing against it. You know, what can you do? There's a lot of pressing, kind of giving up on the game. Also, there's a lot of, a bit of strategy from a left-wing perspective to take on. In previous episodes, I've discussed articles or read articles talking about the three-way fight between leftists or let's say they're the black bloc with the antifa the anti-fascists fascists and then the state which uh either in some circles like plays both sides or completely takes the right-wing side as far as when it comes to maintaining law and order is something that reactionaries and centrists both very much like so to that tone i have an article from a source called do dissidents so this is a kind of very hard left-wing site it's called, uh, the article, or the essay is called, Centrist Liberals Are More Hostile to Class Politics Than Right-Wing Populists Are. So you could read this title as like a, oh, left and right can unite, which has many arguments against, but centrists are not like the ally or liberals. So like in some ways, being on the far left like I am, it always feels like a four-way fight, because you're not only fighting the right, centrists, or seeing them as like oppositional to your vision, uh, and values, but also even other liberals and progressives. So I'll kind of be talking about the kind of 
not so much splits, but different tacks of strategy, especially in the second era when it comes to electoral field. Do you run as a Democrat? Do you not? And go into all of the arguments around that question uh, and other questions of party with the maybe assumption that in order to build our own power, community or otherwise, you need organization. And if you don't want to have political power, that usually comes in the form of what is called a party. Oh, we can talk about defining that too. But first, this is written by Keaton Weiss. It's published January of this year. Last summer, Nathan Robinson reviewed Crystal Balls and Sagar Edrit's book. Those are the hosts of a show called Rising, though they are not anymore. Now they have a new show. What is it called now? Firing Points or something? Uh, a pop- so their book was called Populist Guide to 2020. Uh, Nathan Robinson, who's the editor of Current Affairs and a bit of an uh, anarchist, Polit- in politics anyway, but a bit of an idealist too. Uh, so anyway, he criticized the offers for overstating the compatibility of left and right-wing populism. This was kind of a big argument from that last year uh, debate. Stating that right-wing populism is more or less just fascism and that the left should confront supposed right-wing populists rather than court them and seek common ground with them, as some circles were doing. Uh, this sparked a debate on the left, which was recently revived by Jimmy Dore when he did a video on the Boogaloo Boys member, Magnus Pravada, who, despite his alignment with the obscenity far-right group, speak to, uh, seemed to speak fondly of Antifa and Black Lives Matter and lamented the corporate takeover of the U.S. government. Jimmy later interviewed Magnus on his show, a move criticized by subsequent guest Jerry White, a socialist organizer who appeared on the program moments after Magnus's segment ended. I watched both. He was basically really friendly to one, the right-winger, and really hostile to the left-winger. Because he, he, he simply has this line of, like, left-wingers should be talking to right-wingers more, you know, left and right unite, populism is what matters, not are you, what vision are you actually fighting for, not just are you against the duopoly or against the status quo. Uh, someone on the left agree with Robinson and White that seek partnership right-wing populists in a non... They agree with the position that this is a non-starter, while others fear left and right populists ought, ought to engage with each other and seek common ground on certain issues. Which side of the debate one finds himself on depends to a large extent on their perception of class struggle. Buzzword. Uh, those who interpret it as a top-versus-bottom conflict would be more inclined to partner with those of a different political ideology, feeling their common class interests transcend the political ones. For those for whom ideological divides supersede class ones, such a partnership is deemed both unfeasible and undesirable. So the ideological, in a sense, is what are your goals? What are your, what's your vision for the future or, or society? Like, what are your values? And the class position is, well, we're both under the boot, we're both poor, we're both st- all struggling against market forces. Uh, while leftist trepidation on this question is understandable, those in the latter camp who dismiss and disparage the idea of constructive left-white populist dialogue are badly misguided in their assessment. So this is taking sort of a different tack. Uh, so first, we as leftists should establish that in order to grow our power and influence, we have to grow numbers. There simply aren't enough of us in the country right now for left politics to be taken seriously in mainstream circles. I'm going to cover counters to this later in the program, by the way. Many leftists like to delude themselves with the notion that our policy program is already sufficiently popular, like, say, if, when polled, single-payer is, you know, 65% and so on and so on. It's just a matter of mobilizing. 
For that, we really need to galvanize this already existing public support and organize it into a potent political force. If this were true, then we could perhaps afford to simply dismiss right-wing populists as our opponents because we'd have the numbers necessary to defeat them. And sometimes when it comes to street demos, we do, in fact, have more numbers than them. Uh, for better or worse, however, this is not the case. Uh, despite strong polling numbers for social democratic programs like Medicare for All, the term socialism still carries with a lot of baggage and is viewed negatively by a convincing majority of Americans. As much as we may wish this wasn't the case, so we have a significant work to do in growing our numbers. And I see this as kind of a cynical approach, actually, because I'm more of a, like a left for itself and of itself in my intro, is that there's already a lot of really strong leftists, people with strong values, people with agree, you know, grievance against the system. We need to organize them first, people who have the same values as us. We just need to find them and connect rather than, well, these people are already active, so we can seek them out. Um, it's less work. It feels like a shortcut to me. Once we accept that we aren't yet popular enough, which to me is a cynical take, we must ask ourselves to whom we can appeal in order to boost our popularity. This is where the question of top versus bottom and left versus right becomes rather messy. Because the problem is this. The closer you get to the political center, the less of a top versus bottom analysis you'll find. Centrist Democrats and Republicans both subscribe to a neoliberal economic philosophy. That means markets first, uh, government's inefficient, even though it is. The very purpose of which is to erase class consciousness from political discourse. You know, we're all in the same boat, even though, I'll maybe repeat this a few more times, uh, in the last year, profits of the top 1%, the wealth, they grew, it grew $4 trillion. The value of wages for everyone else went down $4 trillion. That is literal transfer of wealth, not just through tax cuts, but through the mechanisms of the market during a crisis. They did not make that value. It was taken or produced or removed from the marketplace, uh, or moved from circulation, you could say. Populist right-wingers may disagree with leftists ideologically, like, say, how many genders there are, or do, uh, um, what, uh, you can name, name whatever you want. Uh, centrists deny the existence of such a thing, not because they don't believe it, but because the political ideologically explicitly demands that they deny that there is a permanent power imbalance between elite institutions, both private and public, and ordinary people. It's kind of loaded to me, but whatever. Uh, leftists who still believe, but basically the power, the empowered and the disempowered. Leftists who still believe that centrist liberals are persuadable on this point are solely mistaken. Liberals' aversion to class politics is not an innocent misunderstanding that can be rectified through persuasion. It is part and parcel of their core belief system as reflected by the political rhetoric. The media they consume, the candidates they support, to them, class politics is classism. Just as kind of how right-wingers say, like, look, the second you talk, talk about race, you're the one being the racist. They do the same thing with class. Which, like all the forms of prejudice, undermines the market-based meritocracy, which they aspire to perfect. But meritocracy is a bit of a, a sham as well. I think I've covered that in the past, but maybe not in full. I do have an article in the wings. Uh, a relevant microcosm of this key difference between right-wing populists and centrist liberals is the current debate over online censorship. Right-wing populists and leftists recognize the danger of the conceptual power of the discourse management, you know, done by the social media monopolies, 
because right-wing populists and leftists broadly acknowledge the perils of concentrated power. So it's like we're both anarchistic, but not quite accurate. Oh, nowhere in the liberals' position is an analysis of power imbalance whatsoever. You know, it's just a matter of are you engaged or not? How much engagement do you have? It's like everything's already fair, even though it's completely unfair. <laughs> uh, they are staunchly and consciously. That, I mean, when, whenever they, whenever any rhetoric public in the public sphere of like fair elections and we had a free election, complete nonsense. They are staunchly and consciously committed to rejecting not just our arguments, but the very premise on which our arguments are based, that of, you know, that there's inequality, and that's a bad thing. Because even when you have meritocracy, that still creates various inequalities, even when it's functioning right. But really, merit is based on what you define merit as. Uh, sometimes, like if you say, oh, uh, the most, the people with the most best skills are the richest. So you're basically saying, yeah, the, the rich are the ones with the most merit. And then it just becomes cyclical logic. Apply this same dynamic to the ongoing struggle between labor and capital, which is a central, if not the central, concern of any movement with legitimate claims of being left in nature. The populist right-winger sees the deterioration of American manufacturing jobs and prescribes it as part of a solution, creating border enforcement to keep out competing workers. As leftists, we believe that in a capitalist society, capital is the power, and those with a mass capital will always wield it to benefit themselves, and that immigrants are merely a scapegoat for the failures of capitalism itself. Is this a difficult idea to sell to a populist right-winger? Yes, it probably is. But try making a similar anti-capitalist argument to an Obama-worshipping hashtag resistance liberal who insists that the solution to globalization is education and that high-wage blue-collar jobs are never coming back and that the plight of undereducated people is both inevitable and irreversible. It's almost like you have to give up that it's a good thing that there's a manufacturing base in an area that people make things. Of course, none of this is to say that compromises can be made with the right on issues of civil rights, gender and racial equality, humane immigration policy. Obviously, overt and committed white supremacists are never to be reasoned with, but that's not who we're talking about. Sagar Edrit is not a white supremacist, but neither is Magnus Padeva, assuming he honestly represented his views on Jimmy Dore, which can be argued. Engagement with people like them, I promise, is no less fruitful than with centrist liberals. So it's not a matter of, like, the left needs to engage with populist right-wingers, the alt-right, you know, Lulu boys, the, the people who storm the Capitol, because we both hate the system. But it's just making the argument that centrist liberals, mainstream Democrats, are just as oppositional. It's a three-way fight, restating that. Any, any reactions? Um, so they're saying that those guys who, um, what was that building they, they bum-rushed, the Boogaloo Boys? Yeah, the Boogaloo Boys. What, what was the building? I forget. Well, the, the, they're one of the groups that bum-rushed the Capitol. Okay, yeah, the Capitol. So they're, compa- like, what are they saying about aligning with them? Like, It's not alignment that, like, there's, there's just an art, there's some circles, it's like, like there's common ground there because we all hate the system. But we hate it yes. for very, very different reasons. I would never, ever want to be associated with those knuckleheads. Yeah, of course. Ever. For anything. I don't even care if we like the same sandwich. So the argument just turns to that also goes for centrists who completely reject also our framing that inequality actually is a problem. or that What they did was privileged. What they did was extremely bratty. Yeah, it, it's embarrassing that it happened in in this in this because if it was a bunch of brown turn your guy, mic up a little bit if it was a bunch of brown and black people they would have been all shot 
and that's what I believe. And those were a bunch of crybabies, wham, wham, whamming all the way to get what they want. And I am pretty, like, I feel like that comment, whoever made it is completely, like, out there. Sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a good meme about, like, um, this is when the when left-wingers protest around the Capitol, there's three ranks of, of SWAT police. You know, when it was them, they just had, like, one every 20 feet. I heard feet. the security guard opened the door for one of them. One of them did, yeah. <laughs> immediately regretted it but like i know like um in, in some interviews or interrogations the uh, some of them were just like they just thought it was like a group like they treated it like they were tourists i mean but still like that they their assumption was that they would come in and protest in the capital but not wreck anything or that they would still follow some decorum or something which they sort of did but then they would break some other things depending on who they were yeah that they would keep to the public you know keep to the roped areas no yeah (laughs) and that and then as soon as they did it it was like oh shit Mm -mm. so different tag different tone here i haven't i'm gonna read two articles i think they're both written by him howie hawkins was a presidential candidate for the green party last year uh he did not i think he got half a percent it was very bad this is because beating Trump was the first and only priority of many people. And, uh, and, so, and so it was. So I think I need to read the title of this written by him uh, for Counterpunch, which will publish his work. It's called How Progressive Democrats Almost Reelected Trump. Now, it's kind of it's not quite an, like an argument like, you know, it's, it's not taking the tack like Biden would have lost if progressives didn't vote for him or something. It should have been if because progressives kind of gave in to the Democrats and they were, they were very much entryist with their politics that like we should have. It's just the argument that with a more left wing campaign in the race, Trump would have lost by more. So that's kind of his tact here. And that's what he represented. The Greens represent, but was strategically rejected. I don't know if I agree with that, though. I, I don't see it. He's saying that if they were more left, in the, the they have. If they were more left, Trump would have lost by more, because it was still a very close race. Take a listen. He's as much arguing for, and, and, and all of the articles I'm going to read today are based on, we need independent party power. So this is this whole episode is more a retread of this argument or this this need for independent party politics, not dementrism. So. I'm starting with Howie Hawkins since, as far as the presidential race is concerned, he represented that. Um, and so he's kind of giving, and this is, you know, January 1st, so it was before the Capitol riot, but, but after the election. So he's just, this is just his debrief for the election, for the election year. By giving unconventional, uh, unconditional support to Joe Biden, progressive Democrats almost got Trump reelected. Trump came within as few as 21 thousand votes in Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin of winning the Electoral College. If those votes had gone to Trump instead of Biden, the Electoral College vote would have been tied 269 and 269. The election would have gone to the House of Reps on an unconstitutional 12th Amendment for a one-state, one-vote decision. The Republicans would have been in the majority in the uncupping House. The Democrats may have beat Trump, but they did not beat Trumpism. The polls have indicated a Democratic sweep up and down the ballot, but the Democrats failed to take back the Senate as they expected. 
They lost seats in the House when they expected to gain. They failed to flip any of the nine of the state legislative branches that they had targeted and instead lost three more. Republican control of redistricting in 30 states means they will be able to gerrymander districts in order to extend their over-representation in state legislators and the House compared to their popular vote. Trump's vote grew from 63 million in 2016 to 74 million in 2020. Even if they win both Senate seats and the January 6th special election in Georgia, the Democrats' narrow congressional majority means no real change from the long-standing bipartisan policy consensus of domestic austerity and foreign imperialism, which has epitomized work across the aisle Biden's entire career. So this paragraph is like, you won the war for the presidency, but you also lost the war for everything else. It's always something. Democratic progressives got crushed as bad as the Greens did in this election because they took their own voice and demands out of the campaign narrative. After the corporate Democrats closed ranks to defeat Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries, progressive Democrats closed ranks behind Biden. Biden then ran against progressives as much as Trump. He boasted that I beat the socialist. He vigorously opposed the Green New Deal and Medicare for all. Biden stiff arms the left, which holds its fire. Is now the Washington Post headline aptly characterized Biden's relationship to progressive Democrats and its article on the first Trump-Biden debate. Progressive Democratic politicians and pundits took Biden's slights in silence. They equated defeating Trump with eliminating the neo-fascist threat. Socialist professors pontificated that progressives had to support Democratic neoliberalism in this election in order to defeat Trumping neo-fascism. Once the neo-fascists are gone, they said, then we can start a left party. They say this every election, by the way. Yeah. They, they said in 08, they said in yeah. 2012, they say in 2000, they say it every time. We'll, we'll start a new left party once we be the Republican. Yeah, I was actually going to say that before when you were talking about like when they do Republicans and, you know, tr- sorry, I was going to say that before they always say that, sorry, I was going to say that before they always say that we'll make room for the Green Party next year when we don't have to beat this X, Y out. You yeah, know? but it never comes. Yeah, exactly. But Trump is far from the whole problem. And, and this is something even liberals recognize. Trump had the backing of one of the two major parties, which is now the political home for the white supremacist right that has significant power in U.S. political system throughout its history. You know, it's not a new force. Mm -hmm. This hard right has grown grown in recent decades under the public austerity enacted by neoliberal Democrats. The economic insecurity created by these policies has provided a fertile ground for the right-wing messaging machines, racist scapegoating, conspiracy mongering, to cultivate a sense of victimhood, resentment, anti-scientific irrationalism, and a far-right base that is growing even though its traditional white Christian nationalist base is diminishing, demographically speaking. You know, more Americans now are non-religious than ever. Or, not non-religious, but yeah, they're not religiously affiliated, like they're not going, they're not churchgoers. So does not religious mean not spiritual? No, they're not one and the same. Exactly, yeah, they say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Yeah. Or, still theists, but they're not, they're not organized. The Democrats should have crushed the Republicans in a landslide. As Ralph Nader had lamented in September, Biden should be 30 points ahead in the polls against the delusional, falsifying, lawless, selected occupant of the White House, who spends most of his time tweeting insults. Instead, Biden's lead is in the single digits. Instead, Biden campaign like I mean, the second. We knew that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Instead, Biden campaigned like the second coming of Hillary Clinton. Like Clinton, he campaigned as not Trump, not for positive reforms. 
Like Clinton's Stronger Together slogan, Biden would, would unite a divided nation that may have played to the sensibilities of never-Trump Republicans and suburban professionals, but it didn't resonate so much with working and middle-class voters struggling under the COVID economic collapse. Without a progressive economic message to expand the Democratic vote by motivating more working-class non-voters and winning back more Obama-to-Trump voters, the urban share of the total vote, comma, the Democrats' strongest working-class base, it declined 34% from 2016 to 29 in 2020. So the vote totals increased, but the number of working-class voters decreased, uh, or at least a decrease in share total. Even after four years of his racist and misogynistic rantings, Trump gained among African-American men and women, Latinos and Asian-Americans, as well as white women, among every ethnic and gender group except white men. Progressive Democrats contributed to this result by making no demands on Biden or raising progressive demands in their own name. They rallied voters to Biden's vapid centrism. They asserted that Biden was really a progressive. When policy recommendations produced by Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force overwhelmingly embraced Biden's centrist policies, Sanders still claimed that Biden would be the most progressive president since FDR if those recommendations were implemented. Meanwhile, and this narrative is still repeated in progressive uh, media. Meanwhile, as people were suffering under the painful health and economic crises, the silence of the progressives left the field open to Trump for his pandering economic demagoguery. While Trump figured that out, it's still the economy stupid. Biden and his progressive enablers didn't. Trump campaigned energetically to reopen the economy so that people and businesses could get back to work. As divorced from reality as Trump's economic boasts and promises were, at least he spoke to the economic hardships and apprehensions people were feeling. Economy was the top issue. It always is. Mm -hmm. It's the means of survival. But uh, the point of socialism is that it, it's not a question of survival anymore. You're guaranteed an economic floor, like a UBI. Biden could have constantly blasted Trump and the Republicans for failing to contain COVID and thus collapsing the economy. He could have spearheaded a fight for an immediate COVID relief package. He could have, came, you know, laws should have or could have. Our green presidential campaign raised up these demands, though, within an eco-socialist framework. Few heard us. And, and, and many, I, I've talked to many leftists who, you know, online, Twitch streamers and whatever, who have the same politics as me and would have voted for Howie, but they didn't hear him. Like they didn't know he was running or that maybe they did, but they just needed to listen to a speech, you know, the, just the sump speech, you know, and they were like, oh, yeah, I'm like him. I'll vote for him. Others would, you know, just do nothing at all. Or, yes, not Trump is the default. We were blanked out by the media, not only the corporate broadcast and cable networks, including NPR and PBS, but also the progressive media, from common dreams to democracy now. Our leading platform demands are far more popular than Biden's and Trump's. 62% support a Green New Deal of some form. More people oppose fracking than support it. 72% support Medicare for all. 79% support a federal job guarantee. 75% support a shift to federal budget priorities from military to domestic spending. Instead of raising progressive demands, prominent progressive personalities attack the Greens for asking people to vote Green to support these demands. Don't vote Green was their message in a series of open letters, whether it was safe state strategy or no state at all. In progressive online publications, very few of which would print our responses, with the honorable exception of Counterpunch, in 2000, many of these progressive luminaries endorsed Ralph Nader. 
They had been moving to the right ever since. In, 20, in 2004, they called for a safe state strategy, voting carry in swing states and green and safe ones, which failed miserably. In 2020, they moved further to the right over the course of the campaign, from a safe state to a no state, voting Biden in every state, even in states like California and New York, where Biden would lead the polls 30%. The last fear-mongering push came for running up the Biden vote in safe states to deter a Trump coup, even if scores of retired top military brass and intelligence officials denounced Trump and endorsed Biden as the big capitalist poured hundreds of millions into Biden super PACs making it impossible to properly contest the election, which was the result. Biden is now taking progressive support for granted because they pose no threat of voting green. As Lawrence O'Donnell once explained, drawing on his experience as a Democratic Senate staffer, quote, if you want to pull the major party that is closest to the way you're thinking, to what you're thinking, you must show them that you're capable of not voting for them. If you don't show them that you're capable of not voting, they don't have to listen to you. I promise you that. I worked within the Democratic Party. I didn't listen or have to listen to anything on the left while I was working in the Democratic Party because the left had nowhere to go. Progressives gave their power away by giving Biden their unconditional support. Progressive Democrats have no leverage on the Biden administration as, as, it, is, as it looks. He struts out deficit hawks and war hawks in his cabinet. Nor do they have leverage with the corporate Democratic leadership in Congress. This powerlessness was ruth ruthlessly demonstrated when corporate Democrats gained up on AOC to deny her seat on the Energy and Commerce Committee, which has jurisdiction over her top priorities. The Democratic leadership recruited a member of the pro-corporate New Democrat coalition, Kathleen Rice, to make a last-minute bid for the prized open seat on the committee instead. Corporate Dems blame progressives for the Democrats' poor election results, as they always do. And then progressives then blame us when they do poorly. Uh, it's basically a whipping down. Like, hierarchy suck. That's not what happened. Or rather, uh, they, they, they blame progressives, claiming they enabled Trump to smear Democrats for supporting Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. But that's not what happened. Biden joined Trump in opposing those popular programs, and progressive Democrats stood by silently. However, down-ballot progressive candidates and initiatives did well. Democratic House candidates who did run a Medicare for All and the Green New Deal won, and some of those who didn't lost. It was not progressive policies, but their absence in the National Party message coming from the Biden campaign that explains their underperformance. The Green presidential vote came in little over 400,000. That is a middling result for Greens in the presidential race, which peaked at 25 for Ralph Nader in 2000, and fell as low as 0.1% in 2004 and 2008. The 2020 election was a referendum on Trump. Anybody but Trump was the overriding settlement from the progressive side. 2016, on the other hand, was an open seat with the two most unpopular majority parties in history. The Greens received their second best result with the 1% that Jill Stein got. The larger political dynamic of each presidential campaign has determined Green results far more than their own candidates, message, or campaign execution. 400,000 is not enough votes for the Democrats to feel pressure from their left flank, but it is the base upon which Greens can build. And he turns to an optimistic message, as he must. Even knowing that they will not be competitive with the major party candidates, Greens have practical political reasoning for running presidential tickets, advancing Green policies, recruiting new Greens, securing state ballot lines. Unfortunately, we lost many 
because of the low turnout. While we did not get a traditional media platform to advance our policies, we did recruit many new Greens attracted to those policies through social media, especially young people who feel that the real solutions can't wait. Yada, yada. Greens overall, just for, you know, stats reasons, uh, we've won over 1,200 elections over the years, currently have 110 members elected to men local offices. Uh, this included 22 new ones elected in 2020. If the Greens are going to become a major force, or any kind of force, they will need to expand their numbers in elected local offices. I, I also want to add, like, when it's usually a centrist or, you know, whatever kind of Democrat, mainline Democrat, a trope of behind every reactionary is a failed revolutionary. And at times, like if I mention my third party politics in, in, in the context of voting and elections, a mainline Democrat, usually middle-aged or above, will get really mad and go like, and mention Nader in 2000 about how Nader cost Gore the election. I say, that's not what occurred. More Democrats in Florida voted for Bush than Gore. Uh, or rather, more Democrats voted for Bush than Nader. So it's not like Nader took Democratic votes. Bush took more Democratic votes. Because 10% of Democrats usually vote Republican. And, uh, or at least for uh, upper-tier elections, they vote for Democrats locally. Because that's in local elections, Democrats are sometimes the Republicans. <laughs> then, uh, just a recent anecdote. He had this umbrage of like, I was there. I voted in 2000. You weren't old enough. You did. You weren't there. I was there. I'm like, you were there in the election, and this gives you some experience beyond the stats that Gore did win Florida when the votes were counted, and it was more about being strong and making sure that the recount continued. Because the Democrats, Gore, but the Democrats gave up when it was ruled that the recount had to stop. But it's like, oh, no, I don't want to divide the country. There was more unrest. Oh, you don't want, you don't want the facade of our election system to actually crack, a, like, too much. I would be so angry if that guy said that to me because, like, I remember literally staying up all night. I was, like, 16 or something. I can't yeah. remember right now. But, and I went to an all-girl Catholic school, so I was, like, praying on the Bible all night that Gore <laughs> win the election like that's how much it meant to me so if that clown um, for him to assume that just because we weren't old enough to vote that we weren't like into it that's really like i don't know kind of bratty yeah that's that's and i i just kind of clammed up and just like i'm too angry and i don't want to keep arguing because we're just around the fire doing marshmallows so and i don't know this guy well enough i just met him you don't so. think that's kind of presumptuous for him to be like, oh, because you weren't old enough to vote, then it didn't mean... Oh, it totally vote. is. I mean, I just I just glared at him and just like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I, you were there. Yeah. And, you know, and then the host stepped in and said, okay, guys. <laughs> Makes sense. So was this also by him or someone else? This is a much shorter thing about Green Party politics from uh, how we cite, actually. And August 2nd of... 2019. So it's actually a while ago. But uh, it's just a kind of sentiment to round out the hour. It's called Alienated, Not Apathetic. Why Workers Don't Vote. So working class politics, kind of an electoralism. One stop, oh yeah, because uh, in recent election results, and I think I'll write an essay in text form about this, uh, in Albany, we had very low turnout 
Um, oh, yeah, we, we mentioned this last episode. But I looked at the results, the actual results, and the only wards that, like, were more than 500 people voted in them in the Democratic primary were the richer wards. And or wards that had an open seat, so there was more of a fight going on. And sometimes it would be, like, two progressives running against each other. And, and then it kind of becomes, like, which one was endorsed by the DSA and the Working Families Party, these progressive groups. They seem to pick the person who wasn't white. And that's where identity trumps class, but they both have the same class politics. So, yeah. But it's like, I think they would say their rhetoric was stronger, even though they all had the same positions. One stop that sticks out from my first campaign barnstorm through the South and Midwest was a 2 a.m. stop. This is Howie Hawkins speaking, I believe. I believe. It was a 2 a.m. stop on June 5th at the Waffle House in Kimball, Tennessee, west of Chattanooga, on the way to Nashville. We were on the longest leg of the trip. We had to get from an evening speaking event in Athens, Georgia, to a 4 p.m. event the next day in St. Louis. So we stopped at a Waffle House for food, only the only place open at that hour along near State 24. Andrea Moreira, my campaign manager traveling with me, started chatting with the server and introduced me as a presidential candidate. Lara was not impressed. She said that she had never registered and voted. They're all the same to me. Nothing changes. But Andrea gave her my palm card anyway. The first thing Lara noticed was our demand for a $20 minimum wage. Uh, the server, Larer, or Lareri, told us she was making a tip wage of $2.50 an hour plus tips, which is actually higher than Tennessee's tip minimum wage of $2.13. She works the 11 to 7 shift when there is not a lot of customers and tips, the only customers at the time. Larry had recently moved to Northern Alabama from where she commutes to her job in Southeast Tennessee. She moved because she couldn't afford the rent for herself and her two children in her hometown of Libre, Colorado. It turned out that Matt, shorter cook at the Waffle House, had coincidentally also moved from Lyman, Colorado for the same reason. The rent was too damn high. Andrea, who lives in Denver, later told me these Colorado rent refugees steeled her resolve to build the Green Party in Colorado even more. Lorari went on to talk about other items in the bullet point platform on the palm card. She talked about the fight against fracking in Colorado. She expounded on why we need renewable energy and organic agriculture, stop carbon emissions, and draw carbon out. Lorari was obviously well-informed on the climate crisis, as well as her lived reality of low wages and high rents. Yet Lorari had never voted because she didn't think the politicians cared about people like her. She did say she could vote for the Green Platform. We got her contact info and are communicating with her, encouraging her to register and vote, linking her to Alabama Greens. Lori's attitude about voting is common in the working class. Majority are eligible. Working class voters do not vote or vote infrequently. Low working class voter turnout was again true in the 2018 midterms. Even though it was the highest overall voter turnout for a midterm since 1914, voter turnout was up 11% in those midterms. It was up from 11 to 53% compared to uh, 41% in the 2014 midterms. Using education as a proxy for economic class, U.S. Census Bureau data shows that working class voters abstained in 2018 at a far higher rate than middle and upper class voters. Uh, that's an interesting line there, using education, because, like, the stats and the census data, it's like, what's your education level? 
as in that predetermines your income or not just your income because you could have a high level income, but if your bills and debts are solely high, you're still basically going paycheck to paycheck. And something that I I'll write about more is like even in Albany, which seems to have these really secure sectors, education, colleges, hospitals, and government, you know, state government, there's still been austerity the last 15 years. A lot of these sectors aren't as secure. Like maybe they're growing in the number of jobs, but they're not growing in the pay or the security of the positions. So maybe more hiring could be happening, but you'll have this job instead of for life, but for five, 10 years at best. And if, you know, in the hospitals, being a nurse is not cool. But uh, big news, the nurses union at Albany Med has now has a tentative agreement with the administration after three years. So good for them. See how that plays out. In the higher turnout presidential elections, the pattern is the same. Census data, that's table seven, shows 48% eligible voters and families with income less than 75 grand did not vote in 2016. Only 28% of eligible voters in families with income over 75 grand did not vote. With 62% of the population being workers who are directed by bosses, the 55% of families making less than 75 grand is a pretty good proxy for the working class. 75 grand is also the metric for like how much money does one person need to make in order to kind of reach economic security and AKA happiness because you can basically afford whatever rent you need, uh, good food. You can go out regularly vacations. It's, it's a good like metric, but, uh, uh, but also in polling, it's a, it was in a social science study that people over 75 K did not report any more happiness. I mean, my grandfather raised five kids in the 1950s, sixties off of like $17,000 a year being a mailman. I mean, and he had a car, a house paid off. I mean, it's completely, I don't think it's a 75K. I think inflation has gone insane. And sure. I think um, you can make it whatever, but in like 10 years, it's going to be like, oh, 100K is what makes people happy. I mean, it's Maybe. all. Well, not it makes people happy, but it's like, a, it's just a sign of security. Yeah, that's it's, sign of what security. What 17 grand was, it's, it's like 70 grand now. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, a whole, like five kids, <laughs> $17,000. A common explanation for voter turnout among working people of color and youth is apathy. They don't care is the usual cynical line you hear. But in my experience, knocking on thousands of doors over the years in election campaigns, workers, people of color, and young people don't vote because they do not think it is their government. They are like Lavari. Common statements are, the politicians don't have no idea what people like me are going through. They don't care about people like me. They are in it for themselves and the rich people that pay for their campaigns. They're very well. The system is rigged. Voting doesn't change anything. I am not going to be a sucker for their political game. Doing my own share of canvassing, I can attest to this. Of course, they are getting played. Now, this can be interpreted as not caring, but it's more about not caring about the political process as it is. So they might care about a different one. Of course, they are getting played in the political game not by not voting. That is what the major party politicians want, so they can answer to their donors instead of their voters, especially working-class ones whose interests are opposed to the donors. The party of non-voter voters wins most elections. 
Non-voters are the biggest block of eligible voters. The working class is the majority of them. If the Green Party is going to become a major party, and if not Greens, any left wing or any movement, uh, it has to enlist voters who are among the working class, youth and people of color, who don't vote now because they are alienated from the political process. So it's important to like Green or Socialist Party or Labor Party versus a movement. It's like we're going to register people as Democrats to vote for Democrats. But the Democrats are the, going back to the quotes, politicians who have campaign donors. And because it's not just the candidates themselves, the party itself is funded by 1% interest. Um, the Green Party platform speaks to their needs. So Greens or any socialist platform. The Greens have to learn how to organize in these communities, engage in them as Green Party supporters and activists. That's why I have the shirts and I wear them sometimes. It's a challenge that our campaign is taking up because the working class deserves our best efforts to build political movement that can actually finally represent their interests. So I'll close the hour with a little piece from Left Voice that I left off with uh, last week. DSA endorsed uh, Alderman in Chicago votes to give $1.7 billion to the police. Now, this is generally because he voted for the budget overall, which increased police funding. So it's kind of by proxy. But the argument of a radical is that if you're the opposition to the system, then you need to vote against any budget, regardless of, like, what it is. Andrea Vasquez was elected alderman from Chicago's, for, from Chicago's 44 last year. She was one of six socialists elected to the city council, five of whom had run on the Democratic Party's ballot line. The six were endorsed by the Chicago DSA. Now, after a year in office, Velasquez, Velasquez has been censored by that DSA's executive committee. So they'd have regretted their endorsement or retracted it. Why? Working class people in Chicago want to see the police budget cut, even among a survey sponsored by the city. The funds should be redirected to education and health care because that's the proper way to frame the question. Yet Velasquez voted in favor of the mayor's budget, which gives an astounding $1.7 billion to Chicago PD. Even compared to other U.S. police departments, the CPD is a shockingly racist and murderous institution. For decades, Chicago police systemically tortured suspects. They had, a black, they had, they had their own black site. Uh, the murder of Laquan McDonald, shot while he was walking away from the cops, is notorious, not only because it caught on dash cam video, but because the Chicago City Council, the mayor, and the police worked together to prevent the video's publication. Velasquez's vote is a clear betrayal of working people who voted for him and the socialists who campaigned for him. It is a betrayal of the black people in Chicago who were terrorized by the police. Our goal is to abolish the police. And uh, As the Chicago DSA leadership wrote in its statement, this betrayal did not come out of thin air. For the last year, the new alderman has been hobnobbing with establishment politicians and real estate developers while abandoning progressive demands. Velasquez, although censored, remains a DSA member. This highlights that the DSA has little to no mechanisms to hold elected officials accountable, even if they clearly vote against their interests or the interests of the oppressed. One much-read headline claimed that the Chicago DSA was moving to kick out the alderman, but the article only refers to the censor as a measure, giving him the opportunity to resign before the process was started up. This is not a new problem. Bourgeois parliaments are designed, and this is the general, like, revolutionary perspective here. Bourgeois parliaments, liberal parliaments, our election system as it is, is designed to corrupt the representatives from lower working classes. 
Those representatives may come from working stock, but as soon as they are elected, they are surrounded by politicians, lobbyists, and other capitalists. Between their high salaries, Chicago Alderman is paid a hundred grand a year, and other privileges, they, they, they then have little in common with working people. These kinds of tensions exist even for those who run on independent socialist ballot lines. For people running within the Democratic Party, the pressure is even greater. Compromising on key principles is necessary in order to gain committee assignments, succeed in horse trading, and other game playing. All politicians know that if they make deals with people in power, they can leave office anytime they want and get millions of dollars as consultants. In addition to this kind of outright corruption, they simply get used to the new environment. They learn to see the world through the eyes of the ruling class. This is especially true for socialists in the Democratic Party. Even before winning an election, they have already allied with bourgeois. They use the word bourgeois. Uh, but maybe I could just use bougie politicians. Bougie. Yeah, I mean, it's in, I mean, it was in a pop hit rap song, so I figure like it's, it's more known that this word exists. Concept. The Democratic Party is expert at containing its progressives, as mentioned by Howie, uh, who are then compelled to vote for Nancy Pelosi or campaign for Joe Biden. That is why socialists should never be part of the Dems. And when a socialist organization runs a candidate for elected office, it's obligated to go to extraordinary lengths to prevent them from being corrupted. And this is a communist organization here. So I'll wrap up the hour with a general uh, housekeeping. You're listening to The Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt, with... Lou. Kind of glomping on. I do have social media, though I rarely engage with it, as uh, I could be spreading further out, but I don't know. I just I don't want to play that game either. Uh, but I am on Mastodon, which is the open-source social media network, um, away from the prying eyes of Uncle Zuck. So one more, one more general point. Communist solution here. Rampant, which is their newspaper, magazine, whatever, socialist magazine in Chicago, writes that censoring Velasquez is a good start, but, quoting them, at some point the labor movement, the DSA, and other left org orgs need to talk about running their own candidates and holding them accountable to a democratically determined set of demands. Rather than endorsing a politically uneven assortment of candidates over whom we've had limited control once they went office, this is the, we'll endorse on a case-by-case -case basis is kind of usually the tact. We need a political party that is internally democratic, membership-based, which feels its own candidates and thus can hold them accountable. Now this problem is virtually as old as the socialist movement itself. Not one penny for a bourgeois government. That was always a principle for socialists in office. In other words, socialists or lefties have long refused to vote for any capitalist budget, because that's how we think about it. Uh, that isn't a requirement for DSA members who run for office, but it should be. Every budget gives money to cops, to reality, reality developers, and or for the bloated U.S. military. Refusing to fund oppressive institutions should be the most basic requirement for endorsement. Past internationals, when it made clear break with, from reformism, believed that holding elected officials accountable was so important that it was a condition for men membership. This is still relevant 100 years later. The left has been able to elect independent socialists in Argentina, for example, and also um, the new president of Peru is a lefty, uh, a, a former a school teacher. So the left is one in Peru, by the way. Uh, one important message, and it's basically the rest of the world, this is where what's happening. There's independent socialist movements, and they, they actually do win 
because of the crisis. We've had a crisis, but there has been no left-wing victories for the opposite reason. So that's a general case that we'll really go deeper into in the next hour with uh, basically writings from, from Trotskyists, which sort of identify as. Okay, on to the next hour. Still, we the people won. We voted out corruption, big corporations. We voted for an end to war, new direction. And we ain't gonna stop now until the job is done. Come on, all good workers, this year is our time. Now there's folks in Washington that care what's on our minds. Come on, come on, voters, let's all vote next time. Show them which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Thirty years of digging got us in this hole. The curse of Reaganomics has finally taken its toll. Lord knows a free market is anything but free. It costs dearly to the planet. Which side are you on? 
Three Left Show. I'm your host slash speaker, Dan Platt. Leftist reading hour. Talking about electoral strategy on the left, particularly uh, when you actually want progressive reforms. At times, when doing various readings or thinking or conversations, it seems like the to really get reforms done, like even simple, like, I mean, substantial reforms, you kind of need revolution. Like, the point of the revolution is to do the reforms. Like, when all said and done, you change governments so you can pass single-payer. Like, that's what's required. And accepting that changes how you view politics as usual, as well as maybe even day-to-day activities. I have a story, uh, an article, a little short essay from the blog called Be Freedom, which is the blog of Richard Moser. I'm on the show once. A very garbled web call. Uh, he's written very much about this topic. This is he wrote this last year in March, and it's called "The Inside Is Connected to the Outside," revisiting the inside-outside strategy. So this is that you have uh, you have entryists, people who run as Democrats, they're elected uh, because you play the game properly, you follow all of the systems rules. And you're elected, and so you're an insider. Come an insider, maybe you're corrupt, but you're at least somewhat tied to uh, where you came from. And then you have outside forces. So you have pressure from the inside and the outside, or they work together. 
various ways to get things done. Starting the reading. The inside-outside strategy claims we need to work both inside and outside the dominant order to win. Most critiques of iOS, which is going to call it, correctly point out the shortcomings and the dangers of working within the system. But this weakness is also a reflection of the lack of powerful outside movements to recruit and discipline the inside actors, which speaks to the Chicago Alderman story. If the outside isn't working, the inside isn't working either. That said, far too many hopes, dreams, and dollars have been invested in inside work, elections in particular. Working inside does not mean climbing the career ladder, joining some political machine, or aiming no higher than mere reform. Inside work done well means identifying the conflicts and divisions within the power structure and pushing them. It means intensifying the struggle, the fight, working around obstacles and organizing outside the centers of power. Inside work does not have to mean giving up on revolutionary change. It should mean just the opposite. There were Bolsheviks in the Russian Duma, after all. Uh, but one part of the concrete conditions we cannot ignore is the reality that different people and tendencies will, in fact, work different angles. This is the diversity of tactics line. Some might focus either too far inside or too far outside the existing order for our taste, but we should aim towards greater synergy and coordinate between the two. The trick is to learn to keep one foot in each world, walk the razor's edge. For those critical of working within the Democratic Party, for example, our task is to build up our capacity for mass movements, local community projects, or communal projects, and third parties. What I do. Organizing projects are far more important than winning the debate about where to concentrate forces. You know, doing is better than talking. Inside the academic labor movement. I quit my job as a tenured professor and spent the next 15 years as a union organizer for the American Association of University Professors and the American Federation of Teachers. They were the targets of a punishing austerity that declared, cleared the way for the corporatization of higher education, you know, making it more like a business. As a staff member, I was inside the union, but in order to do the job, I had to take on a complicated three-front struggle. The first one, for adjunct rights and against two-tiered labor system between, you know, the tenured professors and the untenured, was the most important. When I started in 98, the adjunct movement was coming into its own. I had a movement I could relate to, advocate for, and help organize. Without that outside force, there would have been nothing and no ground for an insider like me to stand on. The adjunct faculty had been and still are dispossessed. Unions rarely represent them well and often comply with workplace rules that actually hurt them. Adjuncts work for poverty wages, they lack health care, and are always 15 minutes away from total humiliation. Sometimes students are their only true allies. The second front was confronting management. Higher education managers adopt the ways and means of a corporation. Their arrogance and cruelty are so vicious, it's hard to make sense of it. Management understands what union officials usually don't. The adjuncts are a crucial source of cheap labor and a wedge to weaken the entire workforce. Divine copper, conquer. To the bosses, adjuncts are a class enemy to which they will give no quarter. University management, liberals all, led the race to the bottom, replacing good jobs with bad ones, transferring wealth to the top themselves, and saddling generations of students with 
bad debt, and dismal future. The last and most challenging front was dealing with conservative union officials that represented a small but influential but also deeply misguided segment of tenured faculty. With some very notable and very honorable exceptions, many of the official types, both elected leaders, which are usually uncontested, and staff avoided the issues or dragged their feet. A few of them were outright sellouts. Very few union leaders play an effective inside role because they want to control the more radical rank and file rather than leverage them. Instead, the savvy insider leader tells the boss, I can't control these people, so if you don't want to strike, you better start throwing concessions our way. But since control over members is tied to their own power, most union officials squander rank and file pressure. As the percentage of hires off the tenure line grew year after year, replacing the secure with the vulnerable, a cultural shift eased the faculty's surrender to the new order. The tenured faculty were all too eager to turn tenure from a right designed to defend academic freedom into a privilege rewarding hard work, merit. But what is merit other than the morality of the so-called free market? And it has a powerful appeal. Who doesn't want a merit badge? Why do you think so many academic radicals still believe that the free market is a description of reality? Once privilege and merit replaced workplace right and tenured faculty behave much as other privileged groups do when tempted by the comforts of merit and the delusions of class collaboration. Now, don't take this analogy too far, but back when unions had real power, they did not just fight scabs on the picket line. They sent their very best organizers into the shop to talk with and educate the strike breakers, who were, after all, just workers in desperate need of a decent wage and class consciousness. Whether it's labor unions or the Democratic Party, don't go inside unless you are ready to fight on three fronts and deal with the intense contradictions of that fight. Keep the shifting relationship between inside and outside foremost in your mind. If the connections weaken or break, you will. Should people work inside or outside? A good organizer usually encourages people to follow their own instincts. When moved by the courage of their own convictions, people are more likely to do something, anything, and that activism will always be the best teacher. So to summarize that point, entryism is, it can be okay, but there has to be a strong outside. And this is kind of why I started Green Party work. Occupy, the Occupy movement was very much about being outside and being an outside movement. But there were very, you could say there were very few insiders that could leverage the Occupy movement for reforms. There were no, there were, you didn't have the squad. You didn't have these local, locally endorsed democratic socialists. Now, after 10 years, close to 10 years, yes, we're very upcoming the 10-year anniversary. Now you have some insiders. There's been 10 years of entryism. But now the, there is no, I mean, there's the BLM movement. But a lot of that, as previously discussed, has also been co-opted. It's not an outsider movement as much. There's still elements of it. As much as it has the public imagination, it's it's also been, it hasn't been independent as much. But it also, again, uh, you had an outside movement, but it wasn't outside power, unless it was dedicated to being independent. 
or uh, revolutionary. You know, holding public space like Occupy does, like the the square in Minneapolis, which is a full intersection. So, like one one or another is lacking, and and post Occupy, I found that as many from the movement or whatever, I mean, the non-anarchists basically, were ready for entryism, uh, especially with Bernie and any new lefty, thanks to the Sanders campaigns, are definitely like in a socialist framework, uh, I mean, an entryist framework, but at the same time, maybe they're on the fence about it. Uh, or they're ready to do some kind of like, you know, we're de like the DSA does, and we'll go into all of this actually right now the internal DSA debate about class independence versus the party surrogate strategy. Now this is from publication in the newspaper Socialist Revolution. And this is the from the group International Marxist Tendency, which is kind of the new it's not I don't know how new it is actually, but it's it's the branding of Trotskyists, because it's not a personality cult. There is this fig, historical figure, Trotsky uh, who's basically, uh, you know, a Bolshevik, but not so much for the bureaucracy and thus the authoritarianism of the Stalin years and the Stalin takeover in the Soviet Union. For a socialism that is more based on union power, where the unions are kind of the political party, the workers' state, as it's called. Because bureaucrats are, if not, another type of manager. So this is a very long-form article. I'll be jumping around their, to their points. So there's a debate over the party question on the U.S. left. And this is written by a Tom Trotter and Antonio Bomber. Published last month. Very recent. But there's still a party question on the U.S. left that has been around since the earliest days of the labor movement. There's a usual task for Marxists. Uh, we need to form a distinct party of our own independent and opposed to the parties of the ruling class, you know, the two-party system. It is not by chance that the debate is picking up steam again several generations later. The creation of a work, a mass working-class party remains the most pressing task for workers. Consider how different 2020 would have been if there was a mass working-class party in existence, intervening in events with a program that transcended the bounds of capitalism. I mean, that's what the Green Party platform was, and I think some of these would vote voted for Howie, but may, maybe they didn't. Maybe they had their own candidate. It's weird. A mass party of buying for workers would have cut across the rise of Trumpism and its disoriented class polarizing by tapping into the deep discontent that most people have. Or during the historic uprising against after the murder of George Floyd last summer, a mass party of labor could have mobilized this energy to an all-out general strike. It could have escalated the movement by calling for community self-defense to guard against police terror in every city. And this would have been more du actual genuine dual power, coast to coast. Instead, the Democrats cynically co-opted and derailed the movement to safe channels before unceremoniously betraying it and then pretending that it never happened, which is kind of how it feels right now. Every major contradiction in U.S. politics today flows from the fact that the working class, particularly, you know, workers, working poor, working middle class, they have no party of their own. The resulting political vacuum has been filled with every kind of confusion and deception. Could be 
work, work with the top, entryist in nature, despite unprecedented support in society for the label of socialist and overwhelming rejection of the two ruling parties for all, this mass sentiment has no clear reference point on the political landscape, especially after Bernie's total capitulation. For these reasons, the debate over the party question is here to stay. So what are the kind of various sides of this question? What kind of answers are there? So, and this is kind of talking within the DA itself, DSA, in which the Marxist tendency, international Marxist tendency, the trots, I'll just call them the trots for simplicity. Uh, any socialists in the Green Party are also trots. You can think of them as commies who are, who are anti-Soviet Union, as the way it was. Should the socialist movement use the Democratic Party line to get its candidates elected and then, at an undefined point in the future, split off and create a new one? This is often referred to as a dirty break strategy. Option two. Should socialists use the Democratic Party line to get candidates elected and simply give up the demand for a separate party altogether? This has been referred to as a party surrogate strategy, although some proponents prefer to call it the dirty stay to distinguish themselves and those who propose this as a step towards a dirty break. Option three, should the socialist movement instead sever its ties with the Democratic Party and establish a mass class-dependent one? Option four is also, should socialists disregard elections altogether? Focus instead on what is called base building, covered in various episodes of the past. Although this is related, this is ultimately a separate debate. And this is represented by a coalition called the Marxist Center. Not coalition, but a, almost a federation of base-building uh, revolutionary groups. Usually 10 to 20 persons strong, but you know most party chapters are. In the above context, two articles have recently appeared that link to or refer explicitly to the IMT, as the most prominent representatives of the clean break strategy. In a recent article in Jacobin, Eric Blank takes up the prehistory of the British Labour Party in a lengthy attempt to justify the dirty break strategy. In an article in The Organizer, published by the Collective Power Network Caucus, Brad C. argues that the road to socialism in our lifetime lies in firmly embracing the Dems and their ballot line, giving up the harmful obsession with independent workers' party. Outlined by the Greens and the Socialist Party. Unfortunately, am I dangerously obsessed? Let's explore. Unfortunately, both of these articles succeed only in adding more confusion. Although the authors draw different conclusions, conclusions like we should not hurry to break with the Dems versus we should not ever break with them, they both start by accepting the political framework set by the rulers. Although both authors refer to working-class interests and even link to text by Lenin to back up their arguments, which shows how a historical document can be used all sorts of ways. They both cede the battlefield to the class enemy, the one percent, resting on the political assumptions and traditional parameters of liberals that are so against class politics of any kind. So the history of the British Labour Party is undoubtedly rich in lessons and is a topic for a separate article. So here are some of the arguments raised by the organizer. So they use a Lenin bit. Uh, simply put, it's just the sentiment that class struggle or resistance, being the resistance or resisting the system, isn't nearly enough. You kind of 
do in fact need to take state power. That kind of means that this debate is about the means that form workers as a class. Like how how do we raise the consciousness that like, yes, I'm a worker. I'm the 99%. I mean, that's kind of the, the point of the Occupy movement was to build class consciousness in a devilish way to realize you're the 99%. The 1%'s wealth went up 4 trillion last year. You, the 99 went down 4 trillion. That's not we're all Americans and we need to unify as a country. Because there's no market-based or moderate reform that's going to make that fair or okay. The policies are still austerity. And one-off infrastructure bills are not filling the equity void at all. Unless it's a $4 trillion infrastructure bill, I guess. But it's not nearly going to be that. The historical justification for the rise of capitalism was that it created the material basis for abundance. Basically, I mean, historical justification. I mean, the good thing about capitalism is that it creates abundance. So, that's the socialist position. Marx's position is, okay, then now that we have all this abundance, let's distribute it. Let's use it. But in order to do that, there needs to be a change of government. Because you have a government that's all about creating abundance, you know, shifting trillions of dollars to the 1% or creating the trillions of dollars in value in the first place. Then you need a change of government to then actually make the situation equitable. It's not going to be the current government. And by current government, I don't mean who's president or who has Congress. I mean the government, right? And the government isn't the buildings, right? It's the parties and the mechanisms that are in them. The establishment of an independent working class party is therefore not an end goal in itself. It's just a, it's a tool. The class struggle is not an abstract metaphor. In his article, Breaking Bad, How Obsession with an Independent Workers' Party Hurts Socialist Elections, Brad C. of the Metro DC DSA argues that there are no shortcuts to organizing the working class, and a clean or dirty break is nothing but a shortcut. So this is that we should embrace being Democrats' argument, being their left wing. We strongly agree with the first part of this sentence, that there are no shortcuts to organizing working people. We also agree that the dirty break strategy belongs in the shortcut category, but so too does Comrade Brad's no-break strategy, which asserts that getting socialist candidates elected on any ballot line represents a victory. It's kind of how you define victory. Uh, the point being made here in this article, just getting elected to office isn't a victory in itself. Passing material reforms is. In the course of the article, Brad, in D.C., he uses the words material and immaterial about nine times in a pattern of argument, as if to say, we're winning elections, and this vindicates our strategy, as if that's all there is to it. Quoting his argument, the socialist electoral project is the most successful it has been in nearly a century because socialists are contesting for power using the democratic line. When we engage the electoral politics on any level, our goal must be victory, not symbolic ones, not moral victories, but material victories for workers. The branding exercise of which ballot line is used to achieve those victories is immaterial. Insistence on a new one is an individual vanity project that accomplishes nothing for anyone. We do not have the time, resources, and energy to spend on it. 
And I've heard in progressive media that this is a, the, the, that phrase vanity projects has been used to describe the Greens over and over and over again. Even more so when they make it about like who our candidate is, as if like they're the personality. The Green Party campaign is a personality cult, like the cult of Jill Stein, the cult of Howie Hawkins. No. There seems to be this cult of victory at any cost. Victory of the cost of your soul. Uh, throughout the article, there are 30 references to victory and power, but not one of these instances refers to the overthrow of capitalism or a change of government or the establishment of worker power, or even the escalation of class struggle. In each and every case, it's clear that victory refers to one thing and one thing alone, getting candidates elected, as Democrats, full stop. Never mind that none of these self-labeled socialists put forward any single class demand, or even a serious mention of socialist goals, such as expropriating capital, for example, nationalizing something, whether it be housing, we don't have to worry about housing prices if it's just nationalized, let alone ending capitalism. Most of their campaign websites don't even contain a single word about socialism or any mention of DSA for that matter, beyond a logo indicating endorsement. This is referring to the squad in Congress. On the other hand, Comrade Brad makes a single reference to the capitalist system in his article to argue that socialists can exercise power even in a capitalist system from capping the cost of insulin to building affordable housing to diverting money away from police and towards public goods. Not only has socialism vanished from our horizon, but to have modest demands like universal health care is even too much. Such are the woeful, truncated aspirations, lowering the cost of insulin. Don't call yourself a socialist if you're going to do this. What does this have to do with socialism? What does this have to do with leftism? It's just being a social democrat. Like, I just want things to be, I just, just people to be able to survive a little bit more. Never mind the injustice. Far from being an immaterial the theoretical matter, the issue is starkly illustrated by the fact the world's billionaires grew 4 trillion richer in 2020 and the world's working class lost 3.7 trillion in earnings. In a society in which one class lives off the labor of others, substantial material victories would be the reforms that cut directly into the profits of the ruling class and increase the standard of living of everyone else. Take the question of universal health care, public health care, a reform that has overwhelming public support, but it never seems to get any legislative traction. In addition to saving countless lives and billions of dollars, socialized health care, whether it be the insurance or the health care itself, but let's just, let's just consider it's the insurance, the paying for it, would also liquidate one of the largest and most profitable capitalist sectors, after health insurance profits soared 66% and nearly hit a trillion dollars in 2019, many insurance companies saw their income double again last year, 2020. The U.S. insurance sector, which includes about 6,000 companies and a combined assets of 10 trillion, they spent 150 billion of it last year lobbying and electioneering. The sheer scale of this monstrous obstacle, in the way of something as basic as a quality healthcare system, should give us an idea of the scope of the class struggle that would be required to defeat it. The lopping off of this massive capitalist market, it's not going to be done with public pressure or legislative horse trading. Let's look at the example of Canada. How did they get a single-payer health care system? Now, it still has its problems uh, or its limitations, but they have it. 
So how did they get it in their first-past-the-post-election system? They were also dominated by a familiar two-party arrangement of liberals and conservatives for the first half century of the Confederation, which what Canada was. During the Great Depression, the Socialist Cooperative Commonwealth Feds Confederation was organized as a working-class party aimed at eradicating capitalism. Yes, that was their goal. Upon winning 1944 provincial elections in Saskatchewan, the CCF set up a public health care system in the province. In 1961, the CCF united with the Canadian Labor Congress, that was their AFL-CIO, to form the New Democrat Party, NDP. Still exists today. Still the progressive left flank of the liberals. Rather, still a force in Canadian elections. Now, they're very much not anti-capitalist anymore, but the point is, at one point, they started as that labor, independent labor party. Within five years of the new party's founding, the capitalists were forced to implement a socialized health care system nationally. The U.S. has no such workers' party, and the results speak for themselves. It's important to note that the ruling class parties had far more deputies than the ADP in many elections, but they still had to make concessions to cut across their potential for growth. And this is kind of how Green Party politics kind of works. We get a certain amount of votes, and in order to make sure that our vote total doesn't double in the next cycle, progressive Dems, if elected or not, uh, they then adopt Green Party positions, like the Green New Deal or single-payer health care. During the post-World War II boom, the capitalists could afford to give larger crumbs to the working class. The current period of protracted decline and instability, ruling class will not will put up a much more bitter resistance before making any concessions. These conditions make it all the more urgent for socialists to link day-to-day struggle, struggles and you know, struggles people have to the impasse of the system itself, this capitalist system. It is through the cumulative effort of these experiences that the workers will sooner or later draw the conclusion that they can and must change society. So is the, but is the party surrogate strategy proven? This is from going back to Brad C.'s arguments. Comrade Brad argues that the DSA is on the right course by remaining agnostic on the ballot line question, playing to win the game, as he put it, during a recent debate on the party question. His case for a pragmatic approach was couched in the following terms. If we're electing good-principled socialists, who are going to turn state power to our ends, then it doesn't matter if we elect them on the Democratic line, on the Green line, or an independent one, or on the Whig party line. What matters is that we have shown what democratic socialists intend to do with power when we gain it. Leaving aside his confusion and conflation with the term strategic and state power, his logic begs the following question. Since his range of possible ballot lines include a party that dissolved in 1856, why not include the Republican one? If sharing a party line with Joe Biden is not a problem, why not do the same thing with the party of Donald Trump? Maybe because Brad, who introduced himself as a professional electoral organizer in Washington, D.C., realizes that the Republican Party brand carries certain associations in the minds of millions of people, which are, in fact, more than an immaterial concern. Same goes for socialists associating themselves with the party of Wall Street. Now, side, there are actually some lefties that say, yes, the ballot line doesn't matter. If you're in a red state, be a socialist and run on the Republican line. I'll have to check to see if this has actually occurred. I think there have been some spots. 
where it has. But again, it kind of ignores the branding, the consciousness that people have about these these elections. You know, it matters to elect socialists or lefties as, as lefties, not as the left flank of the Dems or better Dems. Because for many people, it's the Dems that have had their boot on them. It's the Dems that have ignored them. Now it's suddenly you're running in a primary for Dems, but then, again, that means you're still ignoring the actual working class. Unless you're canvassing every house and then suggesting, you need to register as a Dem specifically to vote for me, the good Dem, which was the Sanders way. I don't need to read the response. So IMT, like acts as a caucus within the DSA as well. So a general conclusion that game accept, you know, there's a game acceptance versus a dismissal of the game, you know, the status quo. And, you know, asking a question, is this a big fight or not? You know, advancing socialism. Rather than blur the class line by sowing illusions of a party of, by, and for our class enemies, socialists should fight to clarify the class division in society. Given the vast resource, you know, to... Yes, there is an us in them. And you can make it a, we're a party of the 99 versus the parties of the 1%. That's a kind of a case that can go to the middle class, you know, upper middle class or whatever, the people who are somewhat privileged enough. But as mentioned in the first article, they're just as hostile to class. You know, they don't want us in them. It's just it's all, all of us. But there is an us in them. They clearly divide between poor and not poor. They don't want the poor in their neighborhood. Or they want to help the poor, but they know what's best. So it's all, you know, it's a matter of control and regulation. You know, regulate the rich and then regulate the poor, too. Contrary to Brad's assertion, it is not the obsession with an independent workers' party that holds back class struggle, but rather the obsession with adapting to the narrow electoral calculus, gaming, of the two-party system. But everyone... I mean, most people I talk to don't like it. <laughs> if we look beyond these narrow parameters, it's like saying, I don't like peanuts. And then it's like, but I gotta eat the peanut butter. It's the only kind of sandwich I can have. Otherwise, I can't have any sandwich. It's too much work to make a different kind of sandwich. But it's like, oh, we can't organize a new party. You know, there's there's just not enough of us, you know, from that other article I wrote, I read. But if we look beyond the parameters of, you know, primary election, party primary elections, the, the major parties, we can see that there is a powerful social force that is currently has no electoral expression. It can turn the whole politics upside down if it gets that expression. The tens of millions who flooded the streets against police terror last summer, the tens of millions who reject both major parties and aspire for a third one, and the tens of millions who are already convinced capitalism must be eliminated. I don't know if it's in the tens of millions, but it, I, there's probably at least a million or so. I mean, certainly the coalition the Greens have, like, you know, when we get 1% of the vote, that was, how many million was that? I think that was a solid million. But again, that's, that doesn't represent, like, all socialists, because there's always these lefties that vote them. They vote lesser evil. So kind of like maybe step one, it's not step one, but like, you know, you have all these people want a third-party alternative. Building one seemed to be another question because there seemed to be a lot of options of 
those saying they're doing it right. You know, there's the the People's Party. Half of them are scams or grifts. Greens, I mean, you can kind of tell which ones aren't the grifts by how long they've been around. You know, the IWW as a union isn't a grift because it's been around for 116 years. Greens have been around for 30, 40 years or 35. Socialist Party has been around since the 60s as far as just existing. They're not grifts. They just lack members. And so if you had shows like Jimmy Dore, and this is what annoys me about him, is that he can never kind of settle on what he wants to build. He, as a, like This is a populist problem. You have a theory of us versus them, but it's kind of the wrong us versus them. It's not, well, I don't know. No. So with, with Dore, it is class-based, right? I'm not going to make it about him, but he can never he can never settle on like a side as like you know I'll co I'll cover greens when I feel like it, but he had to really be like annoyed into having Howie on his show, and when he does, it's like I'm going to push back. I'm going to grill the Green Party candidate. <laughs> I think I what was the show that like there's a podcast a lefty one who interviewed basically every radical presidential candidate no matter how big their campaign was i think it was the sea realm the sea realm actually went out and like interviewed as many as possible and i like that a lot of progressive media as howie mentioned didn't cover him they didn't co they, and they don't cover greens in the news or what we do or just the greens as an option the more people hear about something the more it, it takes up their mind space you know if you just hear about the two-party system whether it sucks or not how it sucks or how it doesn't suck that's all people like their frame of references and of course if it sucks then it's like there's nothing else what else can i do there's no politician that speaks to me so instead of pursuing campaigns that foster illusions in class collaboration and milk toast reforms the dsa could systemically make a case for a mass party working class we could bring this message to every picket line organizing campaign labor fight workplace campus union hall and where young people and workers are fed up with the status quo. At every demonstration against the endless injustices, socialists could explain that the fight against racism, sexism, and police are all forms, and police brutality particularly, are all forms of oppression, not to mention the fight against the climate chaos. They must be linked, because they are. So now, quickly, in the last 10 minutes, I'm going to summarize... Because this is like an internal DSA thing. So there are some uh, DSA comrades that they interact with. Uh, they do reading groups and stuff. But they had some questions regarding this article that they responded with basically a second essay. I'm not going to read a lot of it. But I'm going to summarize their points. They had, pro they had questions about like how they define a party. So to say that an organization, a working class party, it's four workers from a class viewpoint that it's kind of, and this is going back to like Marxist theory, original Marx and Engels, that it was always open-ended what the definition of a party is. You know, a party could be a federation of trade unions, or it could be uh, something on its own that works with them, that gets endorsed by unions, or it could be by unions by themselves. The goal of any party, thus like when the definition of like what the a good way of defining what something is is what its goal is, what its purpose. And the purpose is to change the government or form a new one and fight a civil war, but 
that's not really what we're aiming for, and it's not on our minds. Civil War is bad, guys. <laughs> we're not actually... Because like, in some ways, revolution is the means of reform. You know, certain basic liberal rights were guaranteed by the French Revolution. The American Revolution was fought so that mer like so that capitalists had right, liberal rights because they didn't before. So if you want social rights, you kind of there needs to be another revolution. But of course, like if, if such a government-changing party is to be big enough, revolutionaries will still just be a fact a, fra uh, a fraction of it or a faction within it. It's not going to be everyone's going to convert to be, yeah, 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 overthrow the government. It's more like there's a workers' party and there's the social revolutionaries. That, that's kind of how the Russian Revolution occurred. You know, third-party votes are votes for the our opposition votes. You know, the goal of a socialist movement should be to achieve it within our lifetime, okay, not three lifetimes. Uh, some have already kind of given up on this. And that's why they're like, let's just lower the price of insulin. Or let's regulate the health insurance instead of replacing it. This means actual seizing political power and nationalizing the Fortune 500. Bring them under democratic control of their employees. Linked up internationally, a socialist plan economy would then lay the foundation, well, communism. But nationalization is... This is what separates, to me, the lefty versus the non-lefty. And it could be, like I said, like nationalization of industries, but the sectors. Ignore, like, the courts aren't even a factor, because, like, you change the government, you're changing what the courts are, you change the function of the courts. Uh, it's, there's a paragraph that speaks about, like, using the courts, not using them, but, like, why the, using the courts is just, like, th this is, like, how you give up. You just use the courts to enforce policy or a change policy so disempowering leaving it up to judges or the law being being an independent socialist party means you can actually make the case for socialism dsa endorsed candidates don't normally do that they don't really maybe there's some raising of class consciousness but in the same vein that occupy did and that's 10 years ago so it's like great you're 10 years late to where we should be let me go through the rest of the notes. Um, what's important about like being an opposition party, being in the opposition, is to have transitional demands. And a transitional demand is something that shifts the economy in a socialist direction, in a, in a democratic direction. I think the, the Sanders-like kind of transitional demand is put workers' reps or union reps on the board of directors in the Fortune 500 that is transitional in that it is shifting towards worker control. But the real strong work tra transitional demand is nationalize the Fortune 500, replace the board director with union reps. Unions are no longer just negotiating with the board of directors, they are the board of directors. Or you share board of directors with consumer unions, so that consumers and the the customers then have a say. And that's how you get away from market, like market demands, which are not really a good representation of fair choice or free choice. Yeah, transitional demands should do two things. They expose the limits of capitalism, like, say, by 
demanding living wages instead of just a higher minimum wage. They should also center workers at resolving these limits rather than uh, leaving it up to Congress or courts. So the thing with reformism, with insider strategy, is we're going to pass a law and that will make your lives better. But real empowerment is, no, you, the worker, you, the people, will be responsible and you'll be doing it. You'll be empowered to make your lives better. You will actually have control. Not me on your behalf, not the courts, because those institutions, they grant the rights, they can take them. They can raise your minimum wage, but then they can also raise a regressive tax on you. They give a hypothetical regarding the $15 minimum wage versus nationalization. Yet an example. When the Democrats recently betrayed the $15 minimum wage in itself an insufficient measure, the self-described socialists of con in Congress failed to expose this maneuver, instead giving it a left cover and excusing its demise over a technicality. Class Independent Socialist Party would have seized the opportunity to expose the fight beyond Congress. Transitional approach would begin to demanding a genuine living wage. So a lot of this uh, essay is about like how, how does a left party do things differently? How would things play out differently? Transitional approach could begin by demanding genuine living wage. For example, minimum week weekly income of a grand tied strictly to inflation. Socialists could explain that the wealth exists in our society for this demand to be satisfied while warning that workers that we can't place our hopes on legislative mechanisms. Rather than frame it as a legislative project, it must be framed as a fight to be waged above all in workplaces in the streets. Starting by targeting big low-wage employers like Amazon, Walmart, Home Depot, Kroger, Walgreens, whatever. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3 Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio, so support us materially along with other producers and citizen journalists with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show with your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the 3 lefts.